I grew up with that Cold War idea of, of the West as a thing that was sort of moral and great and worth standing up for against the sort of slave empire of communism. And then I suddenly realized that for like 20, 30 years, no one had been taught that. And the current generation don't know that story. In fact, they only know the other story, which is the one that says, you know, the West is, is uniquely evil and awful. We're, up with, we're under threat from without because there are very real people, Chinese and the Russians, who are, who are coming together now very explicitly and saying, we want a different world order. What you get in Magna Carta is the idea of the rule of law. We talked about individualism. The thing about the rule of law is it says every individual, even the king, is under the same law. And we can go to court and we can thrash it out, but we'll follow the rules and we'll see who comes out on top. The other threat is, is inside. And that is the fact that we have started to not teach, first of all, to not teach about Magna Carta or the West or what it is, and in fact, to teach the opposite, to teach that it is awful. Because the foundations of, of the Western system are just being knocked down casually by people who don't understand, because they haven't been taught what they mean and how everything that they value, everything that you know, makes their lives what they are, uh, rest on these things. And you know, that there's a reckoning that can come with that. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our terrific guest today is a senior fellow at the New Culture Forum and the presenter and director of a brilliant series. And I'm not just saying because I was in it. It is actually very, very good here on YouTube called The West. Mark said, well, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. I, I already told you the story, but our audience should know. Uh, a lot of people, uh, so you recorded some interviews with a lot of people and I was one of them. Uh, and I never had a chance to watch it because I've got a lot of stuff that I'm working on, whatever. But so many people kept saying to me, oh, that series you were in is so good called The West. So I eventually watched it and it is actually brilliant. Before we talk about it, though, do tell us who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been the journey through life that brings you here talking to us? So I, I work with a number of think tanks. I'm a senior fellow at the New Culture Forum, which, which made the series. I'm also the head of research at the Henry Jackson Society, which stands up for the free society at home and abroad. Um, but actually, I had a long gap in between. I used to work for think tanks about sort of 15 years ago. And then I thought, well, the world's doing okay. I think these problems are going to be fine. And I went off to have a, a career in business journalism, and I thought that'd be fine. And then I looked up and I thought, oh, the, the world has actually is gone mad since the end of the Cold War. Things haven't gone well. Russia hasn't democratized. China certainly hasn't come into the family of nations. And things at home are getting increasingly unfree and intolerant. And, and so it brought me back because I thought we needed to start talking about these questions again, or I needed to, to re-engage with, with the debate. And in particular, the idea of, of, of the West, which is really the idea of this series, because you know I'm, a, I'm an 80s kid. I, I grew up with that Cold War idea of, of the West as a thing that was sort of moral and great and worth standing up for against the sort of slave empire of communism. And then I suddenly realized that for like 20, 30 years, no one had been taught that. And the current generation don't know that story. In fact, they only know the other story, which is the one that says, you know, the West is, is uniquely evil and awful. So I thought I wanted to use new technology for a new generation and tell that story again that, that, that no one had, had heard for a long time. Mm, and you do it beautifully. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it, and actually our producer Anton was saying it to you as you were sitting down, 
how informative it is. I, I'd like to think I'm a, one of the West's big fans. I wrote a whole book about it, but I actually learned so much. Uh, one of the things that you, you talk about that I found fascinating is that the idea of democracy or the idea that authority should be answerable to the people below actually comes from barbarians. That was really interesting. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, the, the older traditional idea of, of the West often is told in a narrative that goes back to ancient Greece and Rome as if there was a sort of unbroken tradition. And it's very true that the West draws on some ideas from ancient Greece and from Rome. It was a big influence. But there are problems historically with that narrative. There's really, there's a big break that happens. And the West, I think, really begins with the fall of Rome. It's what happens after the empire goes. And then you get the barbarians, the Germanic tribes that come in. And they're really, they're very poor, they're primitive but they have this enormous uh, focus on the individual and other sort of individual pride. And as a result, a sort of culture of not quite democracy, but of, of freedom, that of free men who sort of vote together as who should be their leader. Uh, and that culture, I think, was enormously important in, in forming the West and giving it shape. I mean, not just on its own. I think also it's the interaction of that with, with Christianity which is really the form in which the traditions of Rome came into that, into that part of Europe, because Christianity and the church survived the fall of Rome. But it, I think that's a much more honest place to start the conversation about the West. And it also, it gets away from this sort of grand idea of the West as something that's sort of Roman and imperial, and gets back to the real truth. The, the adventure of the West is this poor, primitive, divided corner of Europe that is nothing like as rich, nothing like as civilized in, in traditional terms as other parts of the world, like, like China and, and the Islamic world, but that nonetheless has this thing in it, this spark, out of which are going to come things that have never been seen before in human history. Things like experimental science, like industrial capitalism, like parliamentary democracy. And there was something there Something there that's about the individual. And that, that is partly, I think, an inheritance out of those Germanic tribes. It's so interesting because I've never really thought about it like that. But actually, the story of the West in the way that you describe it is a story of, depending how you want to look at it, either coming from very humble beginnings or a tremendous recovery from a gigantic setback which is the collapse of Rome. And then, you know, I remember uh, seeing um, various exhibitions here in the UK about what happened after the Romans left Britain. And the tribes that came after, uh, who hadn't directly been in contact with the Roman civilization, they, the gap between them and the Romans technologically was so vast that they thought that the buildings that the Romans had erected here, which were nothing as impressive as the ones they built actually in Rome, were the work of gods because they couldn't imagine engineering at that level. And to come from that to being the most successful civilization in the history of the world is quite remarkable, isn't it? It's quite remarkable. And I think the West, you know, it, it, it's the triumph of the small. It's the triumph of giving power to individuals. But it didn't really happen because of like a, a grand theory. It happened because when Rome fell and, and then Europe was divided, no one could exert power from above to tell people what to do. Plus you had this, this culture from below that was quite individualistic anyway. So then people were free to, to play around with ideas. There wasn't enough people who could, who could quash it. Traditional civilizations, which in many ways the West isn't, are much more about stability, about power from the top, about great empires. And the problem with that is you can get to quite a high level of sophistication, but its primary virtue is stability and stasis and the people at the top keeping power. Uh, and they say no to the dangerous, crazy ideas that might take them forward. 
And so that's why you don't get industrialization happening elsewhere, where you don't get all the crazy inventions. You know, uh, Columbus going to the New World. Well, so the Chinese had great treasure voyages, huge, much more sophisticated fleets that went out into the world. But they weren't that interested because they thought they were more important. And it was all controlled from the imperial court. So when the imperial court said, well, we don't want to do that anymore, ban the ships, burn the ships, whatever, no one goes. In Europe, you have an independent crazy guy, Columbus, who's like, I think that we can get you know, to, to Asia by going over the ocean. And he was, he was wrong that you could do that because he thought the world was much smaller than it actually was. And you know, smart people could have told him that. But he had a crazy idea and he, he went around to different monarchs in Europe and he said, give me some money, I'll go, I'll go and do this. Some said no, but there was always someone else you could go to. And in fact, I discovered, which I didn't know, that if, if the Spanish hadn't said yes, Henry the, the Seventh, I think it was, in, in England, had said yes. He'd said yes to Columbus's brother, but by the time he got back, they'd already gone with Spanish money. So it's an interesting counterfactual, you know, that the English might have been the financiers of, of that voyage. But the point was, it couldn't be stopped. There's something unstoppable in the West because it's so divided and broken and competitive, and there's always another power center that you can go to. That means wild ideas sort of bubble up. It's a really good point because you wouldn't get that in China like you said before. There's so many aspects of your documentary that I found fascinating, in particular when you talk about empire and the slave trade, because it seems to me we have an absolutely blinkered approach to talking about these subjects, which understandably can be seen as quite contentious. Absolutely. And I think this is, this is very important because it, it, it's become a, a huge debate of the moment as to, you know, how should we feel about the British Empire? And that by no means is a particularly pro-imperial um, series. That's, I tend to think that empire is the sort of traditional solution of civilization. You build a, a giant empire. The interesting thing about the European ones, for all their, their faults and you know, obviously terrible things uh, certainly happened, but there were lots of them. So all, even there, there was competition going on. But there was also, you know, all of these different, very unusual European values, Western values bubbling under the surface about the individual, about, you know, that the, what you could and couldn't do to other peoples and how you might want to, to bring them on board. I, I talk about the example of Columbus, again, who, you know, a very complicated figure, not, not always a great guy, um, brought back some slaves, native slaves, to, to Spain. And the monarchs said, mm, well, can we actually have these slaves? Is that, is that right? And they spent several years thinking about it. And they said, well, no, because these are potential Christians. These are people we could convert. And that means that they have to be treated with respect. They actually can't be enslaved. Uh, and that was you know, quite a bold way of thinking about the native uh, populations, you know, because the sheer power dynamic, well, you could, obviously you could enslave them, but that actually maybe there were reasons you couldn't. Though, the tragedy, partly of what happened in the New World, was, was to do with you know, the, the epidemics that, that were no one could predict or control, which just wiped out millions and millions of, of people with diseases that they weren't used to being exposed to. Absolutely, in particular in South America, when the Spanish came over, there's a, there's a joke in, in Venezuela that the conquistadors gave the native population the flu, and then the flu gave the native population gonorrhea. Yeah. So it was a, it was a lovely little exchange. But I, I was going to say, do you get Wait, much... the flu? No, you mean the natives gave 
No, 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 no. The, the Spanish flu. gave the gave the native population the flu. The flu, uh, the flu. The native population gave that's, the Spaniards. That's what I was correct. You yeah. said the flu gave them gonorrhea. And oh right, okay. Like, well, that that is a really interesting mix of things. <laughs> now, that is a version of history I have never heard. But but do you sometimes get frustrated at how we discuss these topics? Because in in a way, well, in many ways, it's completely, it's ridiculous. It's being discussed from a point of view that knows the answer. I think that's the problem. And knows the answer basically is that the West is awful and the empires were terrible and that, you know, slavery was, a, was a, of the West, the transatlantic slave trade, which obviously was a, a horrific thing, was the worst thing ever in history and there was nothing else like it. And that, you know, Western sin is the thing we must focus on. And that, that has no nuance. It has no historical context. And it really just, it exists to kind of nor at Western confidence from within, which really matters. It matters today because that's the spirit you need to resist real alternatives in the world, real alternatives from China, from, from Russia, which are, which are places which, you know, they are now the first to stand up and make grand speeches about how the West is, is evil and, you know, talk about anti-colonialism and talk about all the, the terrible things the West did. While they are literally putting people in camps, while they are literally aggressively invading other countries, but, but they use this anti-Western language to, to sort of make up as if we are the villains while they're doing truly dreadful things. And we, we need that confidence to stand up against that. And we can't have that if we, if we have this, idea, this false idea of history in which we are always the villains without even checking the facts. You know, there's a great book by Nigel Bigar. Uh, and I interview him for the series as well. And, you know, I talked to Nigel about it, and that book, he says in the book, and he said to me, you know, the reason he writes it is not just to tell the truth about empire and colonialism, to offer a more nuanced moral account, but because that matters, because otherwise we don't have the confidence today to preserve liberal democratic civilization against the forces which are, which are ranged against it. And it's a great point because if you spoke to someone about the transatlantic slave trade, they would be able to tell you certain things about it and they would be able to explain why it happened. But if you ask someone about the trans-Saharan slave trade, they wouldn't have a clue. I mean, most people wouldn't. Unless they read my book. <laughs> <laughs> or, or heard your wonderful interview about it, which is in the series, yeah, I think, yeah. which, is, which is very good. We have this conversation about whether slavery should be taught in schools and so on. And my answer to that is yes. The problem is we don't teach about slavery in schools. What we teach about is the transatlantic slave trade. And um, this way of looking at the world is, is quite silly to me. It, it's sort of like evaluating whether a sprinter is fast or slow without comparing them to anybody else. You can't do it. Uh, you have to understand what was happening everywhere else at the same time. And I talk about my own family history of being slaves in Russia, I talk about what was happening in my country, what was happening in Africa when the evil Western colonialists arrived. And by the way, the transatlantic slave trade was absolutely evil by the standards of the modern day. But it wasn't as bad as the, uh, the trans-Saharan slave trade, which was conducted mainly by Muslim and Arab traders. Um, didn't last as long, didn't take as many lives, didn't have such a high death rate. Uh, and slavery was continued continually practiced around the world much later and only ended, by the way, thanks to the Western colonial powers putting a lot of effort and a lot of money into it. Does that excuse the transatlantic slave trade? Of course not. But it gives you the context to understand that the Western powers 
are and remain some of the most progressive, tolerant societies that have ever been created. And our crimes, which are many, there is no doubt they are many, should be seen in the context of that, in the context of the fact that other great civilizations and empires around the world were doing the exact same things and worse at the same time. And we ended it. We stopped it. Not only did we end it within our own empires and our own borders, but we also then spent over a century spending vast amounts of money and power and treasure out in the world trying to enforce this on other people and trying to stop slavery wherever we could. Britain was among the first states in the history of the world <laughs> to abolish the slave trade and then to abolish slavery. And it then led the world in suppressing both of those, as I said, from Brazil across Africa to, to Malaysia. That was extraordinary. No other state had done that before. Uh, no other states had done that before. Certainly not in Africa, certainly not in Asia, nor in, um, among the indigenous peoples of North America. That was extraordinary. And, and we carried on doing that for uh, until the end of the empire in the, in the 1960s. And in the 1820s and 30s, the slavery trade department in the British Foreign Office was the largest unit. Um, and in the 1830s or there, 40s, thereabouts, 13% of the total manpower of the Royal Navy was devoted to, um, um, into, in, in, to stopping uh, slave ships leaving West Africa for the Americas, uh, just stopping that, quite apart from stopping slavery elsewhere. And that is an extraordinary legacy, an extraordinary moment in human history where slavery goes from being part of the background, something that's awful maybe, but something that's kind of understood that it happens sometimes, to being something that's morally unacceptable, and morally unacceptable because of a deep understanding of what the principles of Western, Western civilization are, and that to live up to those more fully, we're going to have just, just wipe this thing out. Which brings us neatly onto Christianity, because that's really what you're talking about. But before we go there, uh, I went to the Slavery Museum in Liverpool, and in many ways it's very good, but nowhere in it, and I went through the whole thing because it's an interesting subject, historically speaking, to look at. Does it say who was it that sold the slaves? Nor does it really talk about how the slave trade was ended around the world, by the way. Who, who, whose idea was that it should not happen? Um, Can't trust Scousers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly true. We have a Scouser running the show. Um, but um, Christianity, Mark, um, what is the role that Christianity plays in the development of our civilization? Because there are some people that might argue, and David Starkey, who's a former guest on our show, who, who might argue, actually it's, it's the religion that brings down the Roman Empire. It's, it's the sort of wokeness of antiquity uh, that sort of uh, takes a powerful and confident civilization and makes it meek and feeble and so on. And yet here we are. Uh, so what is the story of Christianity in the context of our civilization? Well, Christianity is a morally revolutionary way of thinking about the world. It is itself against dominance and, and power from the top and in many ways against empire, arguably. Uh, and it was a revolution inside the Roman system. But of course, the Roman system being imperial was in many ways very cruel, very terrible to women in particular. It was often the women who understood, first of all, uh, you know, the attraction of Christianity. And it spoke powerfully after the Roman period to these, these Germanic tribes, this was a whole new kind of heroism. 
And they were very attracted to it, in, in part, I think, because it was a heroism that was democratic. It wasn't just a few people at the top who could, who could be heroes, you know, the sort of the true aristocrats, but anyone. And that everyone mattered. And that that became a very, very powerful force in, in Western history. And, you know, more recently, I suppose, there has been a tendency to see uh, the sort of key liberal democratic ideas as coming later, coming very much from the, the Enlightenment, say. But scholarship, I think, has moved on since that time. And you see books, more popular books, like Tom Holland's book, mm-hmm. Dominion, uh, more scholarly books like Larry Seedentop's book, Inventing the Individual, which go back much further in time and, and say, you really have to look to the medieval period, to the period where, where Christianity is this sort of dominant intellectual system inside Europe, inside the, the West, and that that is what shapes a lot of these ideas about human rights, individual rights, and, and in, indeed democracy as well, and that, that that comes through into the present day. We're so Christian in a way that we don't culturally, that we don't really recognize it anymore. It's like a, a fish being in water and not knowing what water is. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be Christian or you need some kind of, you know, um, imposed Christianity. But, but culturally, the, the ideas that we take for granted are, are in many ways Christian. As you say, the, the, the fight against the slave trade was, was profoundly driven uh, by, by Christian sentiment. And I think that, that Christian ability to go somewhere revolutionary and to say, well, we know this is the established system. This is like, you know, the economy is built on it in certain ways and it's making people rich and this is just how things have been done. But to say, well, actually, no, no. And an ordinary person like William Wilberforce or someone who drinks their, their tea with sugar in it can turn around and say, I can't be part of this and I won't have any sugar from enslaved uh, plantations or I'll stand up against this. You know, I mean, that vast popular movement that anti-slavery was, was, was imbued with that, that spirit. And that, that, that's very Christian. Mark, and fill in a historical gap for me. How do we go from the, the collapse of the Roman Empire, which by this point is already Christian, basically, yeah, yeah? Uh, to the barbarian, sort of that period, and then the emergence of medieval kingdoms, which are all pretty much universally Christian in, mm-hmm. in Europe. How, how does that happen? How do the barbarians become Christianized over time? Well, as I say, the... The church is really the, the one bit of, of the Roman system that survives because it's not really you know, part of, of the empire, but it's there within it. And, and it has a sort of network across Europe of bishops. It has uh, monasteries. So you, you have this, this system forming that can survive the, the collapse. And as the empire goes away, the church is there providing a network of, of local power and of knowledge. And literacy even often. And so that provides something of an intellectual culture that can then crystallize around the, these various Germanic tribes. And they recognize something in it. They recognize the fascination of the ideas. They quite like this sort of individualistic aspect. They find in it and they turn it into something perhaps rather more warlike. That appeals to them as well. There's a, you know, different ways you can receive Christianity. They rather liked it as something they could wave as a battle flag as, as they went in. Uh, which has been true in the Roman times too. That's why um, you know um, um, Constantine uh, took it up as 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 a the symbol of the cross to go into battle under. Uh, but but so the the Germans took that, or the the barbarians, we should say, took that idea, and then it became though a new kind of culture that formed, particularly in the northern monasteries in Britain, 
Uh, and then from there, long way from the old imperial centers in Rome, you get this new culture forming, particularly in the monasteries. And then you get a new movement back onto the continent. So you get this, this new imperial system trying to start up under, under, uh, under the Carolingians. And they, they call a monk from Britain to go there and, and to take this new sort of mixture of the, of the old classical culture and the, the sort of new thinking that's starting to emerge and, and to teach them. And that becomes a new way of teaching Europe. And then that imperium, that attempt to recreate the Roman Empire goes away. But these ideas start to spread and, and Europe starts to reform not as one empire, but as a series of competing nations. But they, they share this uh, a common language of Latin and then also the local languages as well. And so you get a mixture of the ability to have a, a sort of shared intellectual culture, but also local national cultures as well. And that's, again, so important in the West, this ability to have different different nations, different cultures, different centers. It's competing power centers. And there's always a, a restlessness. And that restlessness could be very bloody. Lots and lots of wars. But at the same time, that uh, allows new technologies to develop, the, the warfare te technologies that develop in the West, particularly the use of gunpowder. Um, gunpowder comes from China. It doesn't really develop in the same way there. It, as it does in Europe. And it's because Europe is fighting amongst itself that there, there has to be a kind of arms race there with the new technology, but also because they're developing systems within these nations to raise money for the wars. And that actually is parliaments. Parliaments are a very good way to legitimately raise more money from the nation in order to go and fight the wars, <laughs> mm. and therefore to develop better gunpowder technology or longbows or crossbows to fight with. So people sometimes want to separate out the, the best bits of the West from the other bits and say, oh, well, you know, democracy and it's peaceable, but oh yeah, we used to fight wars. It's, it's the competitive warlike things that were going on inside the West, which are tied to its Christianity, that are, are tied to its parliaments. The West is a, is a complex and, and dangerous thing. We shouldn't imagine it's, it's perfect or it's wonderful, but it was just this extraordinary fusion. And out of it, you get these things that just didn't happen elsewhere. And you talk about things that don't happen elsewhere, but you touch on the Magna Carta. And I found that fascinating because I can't really remember in my education being taught about the Magna Carta or why it was so important to our nation. So let's explore that. Yeah, but you know, this sort of stuff used to be taught all the time everywhere. There used to be jokes about it. That's why there's the joke in, you know, the old, the old Hancock. Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? <laughs> because, you know, the, everyone would know what, what it was and why that wasn't, wasn't correct. But we've, stopped, we've stopped teaching this history. What you get in Magna Carta, and this, this is really something that I... I think is central, and we perhaps haven't talked enough about yet, is the idea of the rule of law. We talked about individualism. And the thing about the rule of law is it says every individual, even the king, is under the same law. And we can go to court and we can thrash it out, but we'll follow the rules and we'll see who comes out on top. It's not that because you're rich and powerful and the king that you can just do what you like. Everyone gets a fair shot in court. And I mean, you know, maybe yeah. someone's got a better lawyer, but in theory. And Magna Carta is the point one of the key points 
where we say that. Where we it's say fairly that. early days in the development of that idea, yeah. to be fair, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's the barons taking some of the power away from the king. It's yeah. not like the ordinary, you know, the idea that the ordinary person is entitled to the same justice as a king in that day would have been ridiculous. Yeah, but, you know, it's there, it's there in principle. Right? It's, it's the barons who are fighting for it. And even though it's just barons against a king, sort of princelings against a, a prince, but that there is still, it's not one emperor mm-hmm. over the, the court, over the great empire. And it's those divisions that eventually play down and mean that everyone is ultimately in the same place. And before that too, you know, the, the, the old law codes of, of uh, people like the Visigoths, talking about the, the barbarians again, you know, which is a name that we use to mean sort of completely outrageous and barbaric, people who tear things down. They had very, very strong law codes that were about giving people rights, giving, giving women rights. Um, they, they could choose who to marry after they got to a certain age, like 20 or something like that, you know. So not, not exactly modern rights, but, you know, more than you might expect. But that, that idea of, of law, I think, is, is central. And, you know, something that occurred to me in, in working on this is we don't even notice how deep it is culturally for us. Like, you look around at every big news story, like the Supreme Court this week, very important decisions going down in America. It's a, it's a, it's a law story. Or you go and, you know, look at novels or movies, and it's, a, it's John Grisham, or things like this. Um, or, you know, in Shakespeare, it's, um, uh, it's Merchant of Venice. Law, again, so, so common we don't even notice it. It's this really powerful thing. And then you go somewhere else, you go to China. There's no rule of law. There are things that might look like it. There are things that might look like courts. But China is a place where there are, what, two to five million people in prison? Not a single one of them has had a fair trial. You know, it's like 99% of, of prosecutions ending convictions. 99% of appeals are refused. This is not, this is not a system that has anything approaching rule of law. I was talking this week with some, some Western businessmen who spent time in, inside Chinese prisons. And, you know, it's terrifying to hear those stories. And it's those moments when you suddenly realize how much we take for granted. And I think this is a big problem with the West, right? It's like we grow up in it. We're used to it. We think, we think oh, this is just how things are. You take one step outside that and you suddenly realize how different things can be. It doesn't have to be this way. And that's a great point. We do take things for granted. And you talk about in the documentary, you use the word threat several times and you say the West is under threat. Well, I mean, what do you mean by that, Mark? I mean, look around. We're not under threat, are we? I mean, France maybe, but not here. <laughs> we're under threat from without, and we're under threat from within. We're, we're under threat from without because there are very real people, Chinese and the Russians, who are, who are coming together now very explicitly and saying, we want a different world order. We think our way, even though it involves putting people in camps for their religion or because it involves us, shamelessly invading and butchering people in another country, but we think our way is better than your way. And if we can, we're going to take over and we're going to impose a different system, a system in which individuals don't matter, in which things are run from the top, in which there is no rule of law. Now, okay, we can feel pretty safe from that here, maybe, but you know, they're getting, they're getting stronger, they're very powerful. We are really going to care about them if Chinese invade Taiwan and suddenly we can't get the the microchips that, that run everything in our country, you know, from, from cars to watches to, to mobile phones. Th- this stuff really will affect us, just as your energy bills last winter, your energy bills this winter 
are affected by what Putin's up to in Ukraine, even if you don't care or have the sort of personal connection that Constantine does to what's going on there. Uh, so that is a real threat. But the other threat is, is inside. And that is the fact that, especially at the top level, in the universities, in the schools, we have started to not teach, first of all, to not teach about Magna Carta or the West or what it is, and in fact, to teach the opposite, to teach that it is awful, that we've done terrible things, we need to apologize for them, and that we're not very special, or if we are special, we're special in being awful. And if you do that, it's like I was saying about what Nigel Bigar's been working on, you know, if you do that, you don't have the confidence to stand up against people like Russia and China, and things inside start to go away. And even without that external threat, you start to throw things away because you don't think you need them. You start to tear down meritocracy. You start to say, well, equality, it's all very well, this individualistic approach, but, you know, oh, we need to do more for people of colour or we need to do more for certain groups. So and actually, we won't, we won't judge people by the content of their character anymore. We'll start judging them by the colour of their skin. Uh, scientific objectivity, oh, that's very nice, but maybe we should look at other systems of knowing and not worry so much about, you know, just following objective reality. We are in a period where, the, you know, the basic building blocks, the foundations of, of the Western system are just being knocked down casually by people who don't understand because they haven't been taught what they mean and how everything that they value, everything that, you know, makes their lives what they are, uh, rest on these things. And, you know, that, there's a reckoning that can come with that. And do, do you think that this is how civilizations collapse and implode? Is this what happened to the Roman Empire? Is this what happened to other empires? Or is it something different? I think the West is so different that it's hard to draw comparisons. The thing about most traditional civilizations is that they're very stable, right? You, you have this authoritative system from above. It doesn't change that much. It can become quite grand and go on for a long time, but it can break quite fast. And, and then they don't really have a way to come back. The West, of course, has already fallen in a way. It, it's, it's like, it's it sort of starts in a sort of post-apocalyptic setting of Western Europe after the empire's gone. And that makes it very resilient. It's, it's a sort of distributed, bottom-up system. So, and it also means it continually renews itself. So I think the West does have the potential to survive and go on much longer than a normal civilization. But it needs to hold on to itself. And if it doesn't do that, you know, it can just get lost. And because it's so unusual in human history, it could get replaced by, you know, it could go back to the norm. It could get back to, to a system of top-down control. It could go back to all the things that are kind of the default of human history. And we need to hold on to it just because it, it's so unusual and that, you know, it, it has so much more to give. We, we aren't there yet, right? The, you know, the West keeps changing and moving upward. As someone, uh, Walter Russell Mead, the historian, says, you know, we are, we're building a space rocket. We're not, we're not building a rest home. We're, we're here to you know, go to the stars and keep doing crazy new things. The West is, needs to hold on to its roots, but, you know, it keeps growing up into the sky as well, trying to live up to these extraordinary ideals that it has. And Mark, one of the great gifts the Western civilization did give to the world is the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. How does that happen? How does that come about? What is the process that the, the West takes 
to get to that point where suddenly people decide, oh, let, let's, let's, you know, invent the scientific method and, and think about, you know, various things that come with the Enlightenment? It's an incredibly hard thing to do. And this is, this is why it doesn't happen elsewhere. And in the West, it takes a very long time as well. The West has two things going for it, though, apart from, you know, its general, its general sort of individualistic sort of setting where mad ideas can, can be allowed to sort of bubble through. Firstly, it's quite an inventive culture. Um, that, that was always true, it's true from the Germanic days. You get things uh, going on with a lot of automation early, well before the Industrial Revolution. You've got water mills, windmills. These, these are taken to a new level of sophistication in, in the West. So there, there, there's an inventiveness going on. You've also got Christianity, which we've talked about before. Now, Christianity is sometimes seen, particularly from a sort of Enlightenment perspective, as being somewhat opposed to scientific thought. And certainly there were moments when it... The, the center of the church wanted to stand against certain certain ideas. But uh, Christianity in the West, at its root, had the idea of a, of a, of a reasoned order, that, that God himself was uh, logical and created a, an ordered creation that followed certain rules. And one of the key inventions I talk about in the series, which is very early on, sort of in, the, in the Middle Ages, is the invention of the mechanical clock, and this doesn't happen elsewhere. You get water clocks, you get um, sand clocks, ta- sand timers, things that are about the flow of time. But to create a machine that, that ticks and talks and, and sees time as distinct units, it's really very different, very, very challenging thing to build. And it turns up in the Middle Ages, and it's actually used not just to be in every town square and to you know, help people coordinate their days and, and work in different ways, but also to demonstrate models of the cosmos. And he, these models are wrong. They're sort of Christian models in which the sun is at the, uh, uh, the earth is at the center and the sun and everything else goes round it. But the, it's very much a sort of clockwork universe built by God with us at the center of it. And, and that, you know, survives for centuries, but it's tied, you see, this, this rational Christian order to this idea of, of an orderly world where you can build things within it and you can follow the rules and you can make new things like like the clock. So that, that's there, that's all under the surface, but it's very hard to get from that to experimental science. It starts to happen in the universities, which is a place, again, where different ideas can come along. What you really need to do is you need to put the theoretical thinking together with the, the people who are good with their hands. And that, that just takes a very long time for people to get around to it and to start to do it. And it starts to happen when they start to notice the gaps in the clockwork universe that they've got, they start to say, oh, hang on, there's a star in the sky that shouldn't be there if we have this, this neat mechanical model that was a supernova. And then someone invents uh, the, the telescope, which comes out of another very interesting invention, which is eyeglasses. But the telescope suddenly allows you to look at things in the sky and you see the moon and it doesn't look like the theory says it is. And so it's people, you know, we think about, I know Galileo, we think about these people as just uh, having ideas or doing theory, but they're, they're working with their hands to build new instruments to see things. And it's that ability to combine the two, to, to have an idea, a theory, an abstract theory about the world, and then to, to build things to help you test it. And that's what, what starts to develop. And in fact, that, that feeds into the Industrial Revolution as well, because what James Watt does with the, with the steam engine, which is at the center of that, is, is to improve it and to make it more efficient. But he does it 
by, by knowing theoretical people, by talking to them about their new ideas, and then you know, hammering and going and smelting and working with iron to see if he can make a new thing that works and trying and trying again. So that sort of trial and error with the hands put together with this sort of theoretical, abstract thinking about the world and that then, those two together, suddenly you have this ability to, to, to not just have one invention, but to sort of have a way of inventing and inventing and getting to know this ordered world in a, in a whole new way. And it just opens doors that, that you know, we're, still, we're still walking through. And it's the ability to tolerate heretical thought as well, although that wasn't always the case. And of course, there were great thinkers who unfortunately paid with their lives for their, for their thinking, their thoughts and their work. But we were able to tolerate that in the West, weren't we? We were able to tolerate that within universities because they were kind of independent institutions. That goes back to the idea of law. You know, they could special law that allowed them to be these independent corporations, but also because they were sort of independent princes. So again, it's a bit like Columbus. You go and find another patron, go and find another power centre that'll protect you for their own personal reasons from the papacy. So yeah, you know, maybe the Pope doesn't want you to say that um, we're not at the centre of the universe, but you know, there's probably a prince up the road who will look after you and have you at his court, particularly if you're going to help him come up with cool new inventions that maybe help him defeat his neighbours or something. And do you think that is the main difference between the West and the Islamic world? Because as, any, because as a lot of people will be able to tell you, at one point the Islamic world was streets ahead of us when it came to science and maths, etc. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, I talk about it in the, in the documentary how there's a lot of sort of westernised names that we have for the people who, who really influenced us in important ways and provided things into the West that we'd, we'd lost. Al-Hazan is, is very important for, for lenses. So... Uh, his tracts are, are picked up by, by Roger Bacon in England, and, and that leads in some ways to spectacles. But the, th- the theory's all wrong. That's the interesting part about that is they just, they have these theoretical ideas, but they're not developing them, them practically. So they're not, they're not testing them. In some ways, it, it gets a bit frozen there. There's a point, yeah, where they, they, they could have gone down that road. But this is what, as I say, is kind of the default of human history. You have these flowerings or these moments where knowledge could break through, but ultimately you're within a civilized system in the sense of something that's sort of controlled by great princes from the top down. It's very centralized. It doesn't have somewhere you can go and hide from that and, and think the crazy thoughts. And it gets, it gets shut down. And there's a lot of documentary makers who say that when they make a documentary, I'm a huge fan of, of documentaries, I love them, that it's a real journey. It's almost a journey of a discovery when you make a documentary. So what did you actually learn as you were doing this? Yeah, it was, it was a huge journey. And, you know, the funny thing with, with Constantine's interviews, we did that what, sort of, you know, in, in the summer or something. And then it was like six months or so before we were returning to it and trying to work out which bits to use. You do, you do have a sort of time to really sort of think things through. I think um, one thing I've mentioned already, uh, the idea of law and how important that was to the West, uh, that, that's something that really struck me as I was making it. Um, but I think, too, it's, it made me more optimistic about the West because a lot, of, a lot of people can be like, oh, we're all doomed. Or if they think about the West, they think, oh, well, you know, even if I like it, it's, it's in decline. But when you study its, its story and you realise how often it's been, you know, in, in a terrible state or in the bottom of a hole and it, it's come back and you see this, this sort of structure that it has where it, had, it, it, it can sort of reinvent itself from below because it's so distributed. Um, 
you know, th this idea of the West as in twilight, as in decline, it's like the place of sunset. But it's, I really don't think so. It's always, it's always the sun coming over the horizon. There's always another dawn in the West. And, and so that, that made me much more optimistic. And in a way, I think that's, that's so important because it's people thinking, oh, well, the West is over, isn't it? And even if you think it's fine and it had an interesting run, its day is done really now, isn't it? Once you start thinking that, you're looking around for someone to surrender to because you're wondering, well, who's going to be next? Maybe it's China. Maybe it's Russia. Maybe it's the Soviet Union, you know. Um, you need to have some confidence that there's still exciting things for us to do. Otherwise, you know, why would you bother to keep our institutions, our traditions alive? Well, we are locked now culturally in, I mean, I'm so glad you came onto that because this is, you've talked about the, the past, but the future is arguably more important, although mm. depending on the past, of course. Um, we're locked in this cultural standoff now between a bunch of different groups. But one of the things that's going on is you have this group of people who've essentially uh, either given up on the West or people who think the West is uniquely evil for the reasons that you elaborated on. And on the other hand, you have people who are so fed up of what those people are doing to the West that they've also given up on the West. And now they are, you know, some of them, you see this online, certainly sort of celebrating Vladimir Putin as this great savior of Christendom. <laughs> You know, and, and that's because I think they are so fed up with a lot of the cultural changes they see in the West. And I suppose uh, one of the things I see out of this conversation that I wanted to ask you is if it is a, a, an essential quality of our civilization that we keep disrupting ourselves, what does that mean for our future? Because a lot of people would argue, I mean, our show is based on essentially going, like, what the hell is going on? And there's a lot of disruption, very fast-paced change. A lot of, lots of normal people are suddenly finding themselves in a position where, like, the beliefs they had two years ago are now really like outrageous and can't be said in public. And, and and the pace of change seems to be getting faster and faster. So where does that leave us going forward? We have to find a way to, to you know, to adjust to that change and hold on to something, and that it, that is the riddle of the West. I talk about it a bit in the, in the last episode of the series. You know, we have a tradition of of disrupting, of doing new things, and we we need that because you just put us under glass and oh, sort totally. of say, well, we've got to sort of hold on to this tradition as like a you know as a static thing. It won't it won't work, uh, and and that it's really difficult. But I think what we used to have when we would talk about the West and say, well, no, these are the things that matter. You know about treating individuals equally, about, about democracy. The institutional framework that we've built up, free speech, you know, all these things, those are the things we've built to sort of hold and channel the, the Western energy into healthy directions and into a way that everyone can live their lives in, in ways that are you know, fruitful and we can continue to grow the economy and, and you know, do more exciting things, discover new things. And so those are the things we have to preserve. And people, people now are just carelessly tearing things down because they don't understand, you know, how much they matter. But if we don't have that, well, you know, there are two dangers. One danger is the danger of, you know, slipping back into a sort of Russia, China type, you know, system, which is, which is terrifying in its own way. But the other thing is that 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 Western spirit, which is, I think, quite dangerous if it's not contained within these institutions. That's 
it goes back in a way to the worst of the barbarians, right? Because those Germanic tribes were brutal and uncivilized in many ways. And Christianity and all the other things of the West have spent centuries turning that energy into something more fruitful. But, you know, the social justice warriors or the people on the, you know, the right who think, you know, Bronze Age mindset is the way to go. Both of those <laughs> are harking back to a pre-Western idea, which is thrilling, but very, very dangerous. And they're loot because they don't have the, the tradition of, of the West, what that turned that heroic impulse into. At the center of the West, you know, there is this heroic impulse, your life matters. You are on an adventure and you are the hero at the center of it. But you need to center that within the institutions that allow that to not just be destructive and tear everyone down and, and make everything worse for everyone else. And, and the way to do that is, is all the institutions that we've spent centuries working out. And what impact has the fact that we've become, and I'm saying this as an agnostic, an agnostic, what has the impact of the decline in Christianity had on our civilization? Well, of course, it's a decline in church attendance more than it is, in some ways, a decline in Christian values, I think. And I, th I think one of the problems at the moment is people don't quite know how to teach that. But I think you can't really be culturally literate in the West if you don't know something about Christianity, which doesn't mean teaching people to follow it as a faith, but they, but they surely need to know something about it because you can't really understand not just our art, you can't really understand, you know, the, the Sistine Chapel or, you know, Michelangelo's David or lots of things like that, but, but also a lot, of, a lot of intellectual thought as well, which, you know, is based around uh, very Christian principles. So there needs to be, I think, some grounding in that, and, and that is, is very important to people. I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm a Christian myself. I think, you know, if people go to church, they'll, they'll find that there's something very important and powerful there. But uh, it's not to say that everyone in the West uh, needs to be Christian. But, but what, what's emerged from that Christian background? Because Christianity in the West has placed so much emphasis on choice, on people choosing who they marry, on people choosing the faith for themselves, that it's created a space in which you can choose what religion you follow for yourself. And that's a very Western, sort of Christ, culturally Christian ideal. So as long as we have that, we have the basis of a, of a society in which people can choose to be Christian, then that's a, a good thing. Perhaps one of the worries in, in today's culture is that, is that Christians themselves are maybe moving into a sort of a negative world where they're, they're treated as somehow culturally hostile and alien and, and people who need to be sort of pushed out of the public square. Um, so so that, that concerns me more than the idea that just not so many people are going to church. And I really like the fact that you are optimistic because it's so refreshing. Because, you know, on this show as well, we talk to, you know, all different types of people with different viewpoints. And it can be very, very easy to slip into a negative mindset. It can be that It's very tempting. And there's a lot of people who make a lot of money on it, particularly on this platform. So let's look at grounds for optimism. Why are you optimistic? I'm optimistic because in the end, the energy of individual people to come up with crazy ideas they're going to sort things out is the most powerful force in the world. You know, look at um, the Wright brothers coming up with the plane. Just before they did powered flight, there'd been a, a big project to do it, you know, sort of government support, loads. Didn't work. And there's a big, big uh, 
editorial in the New York Times, maybe it's going to take a thousand years for us to come up with powered flight. Mm. That's, that's the, the way of things if you just rely on that. A couple of bicycle mechanics playing around. Again, what I was talking about before, tinkering and using theory both together. And suddenly they do this thing which transforms human experience and suddenly allows us to do a thing that we've dreamed of throughout human history and never been able to do. And that's, that's, you know, an unparalleled thing to unlock, but it's too dangerous for places like Russia. It's too dangerous for places like China because it brings down those, those systems. Um, for, and they, they know that they can't stand it. That's why you got things like Tiananmen Square where they have to crush the revolt and, you know, sort of mash the protesters who are pro-democracy into, you know, into, into blood and pulp with tanks. But once you stop having that, then you can't, discover these things. They've got as far as they have recently because they've taken up the ideas that, that we've invented. And but we used to think that, that this was too optimistic. We used to think, oh, well, China is going to become like us because it's going to become rich and industrial and mm. that'll be fine. It doesn't work like that. You can become rich and stay within, you know, a very totalitarian system, as it turns out. It's not, not as good, maybe, you know, maybe not as productive, but you can do things. Some things maybe you can do faster. So, you know, that's, that's a scary thing. Then you suddenly realize you've got to hang on to the idea of the West, to the idea of what we have, because actually maybe it's quite special. Maybe it's not so easy to, to turn someone else to that. So grounds for optimism, but, but you know, you need... You need to be wary as well. You can't just have a sort of blind optimism that it'll, everything will naturally go in a Western direction. I think the, the most important point um, is here in all of this conversation is the importance of understanding our history correctly. And this is one of the reasons I've been writing and talking about a lot, because if we don't have a healthy view of ourselves, I just don't, I think it's very difficult to then have a, a confidence in the future and have the right attitude about the future uh, to deal with the challenges to come. And, and because of that, I think your documentary is really, really important and beautifully made. You've got some fantastic uh, guests interviewed there, people who we've had on the show, uh, as well as others. You know, Andrew Clavin is in it. Uh, Nigel Bigger, you mentioned, uh, you know, James Bartholomew, a bunch of very, very good guests. So uh, thank you for making it. It was a real pleasure to be involved. Uh, I hope people go and check it out. It's on the New Culture Forum YouTube channel available in six as a six part series called The West. Make sure you go and check it out. Uh, we're going to ask you some questions from our supporters in a second on Locals. Before we do, we've always got the same final question, as you know, which is what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? I think we should be talking about what to do about our universities. Perhaps we are talking about this, but we need to be talking about it more. Specifically, what happened with the West, you can actually almost date it. 1987, protests at Stanford, hey-ho, hey-ho, Western Civ has got to go. The Western Civilization course in the top elite universities of America were some of the most important courses they had. And they got torn out because they were politically incorrect, they considered them to be racist, 20, 30 years later, we see what happens. When you, when you, I think lots of people are, you know, the mass of people are quite ready to be proud of Western civilization and to, to be pleased to learn more about it. But when you take it out of the top institutions that produces the people who run all the institutions of society, it's, it's a disaster. And it's very hard to know how to get the right ideas back into those places. Uh, and I think that is the great intellectual challenge of our time. And, you know, there, there are great things people do around the edges and they say, well, maybe we'll start a new university or something. 
It's powerful. It's powerful. But there are things you can only do from the center. We talked about the Supreme Court earlier. Supreme Court and its ability to make decisions which, you know, I would argue stand up for rule of law and in very important Western principles happened because of the Federalist Society, which worked inside top American law schools to, to bring top lawyers to think in a certain way and ultimately to be in a position of power in the Supreme Court in America. More broadly, what else can we do that's like that, that takes these ideas back, not just, not just to the people who are more receptive to them, not just in our schools to everybody, but to the people who are going to have power in our society. So the problem we've got is people right at the top who prefer fashionable ideas about how awful we are. And until we can reach them, uh, it's very hard to change things around. Well, I would argue that actually we've just done it and you've done it with your series and uh, the conversations we're having and people writing books about these things actually is what will make that difference. Because actually, I really agree with you that I think the overwhelming majority of people in our countries, not just this country, but in, any, in many others, uh, are, are, are ready uh, to hear a balanced and sensible, healthy message about our past, our present and our future. So thank you very much for coming on and join us on Locals where we will uh, talk uh, more with Mark and ask him your questions. Is there a particular trigger that might inspire a kind of renaissance of confidence here in the West? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.